Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. And today I have again with me my co-host. She's amazing and beautiful and very understanding, especially with all the podcasts we have to do. So hello, Deborah. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And today we have with us Doyle Johnson of the Classic City Bee Company. How are you doing today, Doyle? I'm doing great, guys. I appreciate you having me on. So, Doyle, tell us about Classic City Bee Company and how you got involved in sort of your journey to basically a honey bee farm. Uh, yeah, well, I think like most of the people that are on your podcast, it's a little bit of a strange journey uh, that leads here. Um, but, yeah, we're Classic City Bee Company. We are a father-son operation. I am the son in that duo. My father, Scott Johnson, and I, we run it together. And we're out of Athens, Georgia, which is the classic city, if you didn't know, um, hence the name. And I am actually, I'm an attorney by trade. I'm an attorney. I practice real estate law. But along the way, I learned that my passion is, is honeybees and not, uh, not necessarily the law. And <laughs> One's definitely I, more fun, for sure. Oh, yeah, it is. I mean, but here's the thing. You know, thousands and thousands of stinging insects versus a a group of attorneys in a courtroom. I'd rather take the stinging insects any day. So <laughs> I, I can was, see it, where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah, it, not, it, it's not a difficult choice. That being said, I still do practice law. I'm a real estate attorney, so I stay out of the courtroom most of the time. Uh, my father, who does this with me, he works at the University of Georgia as a uh, researcher at the uh, vet school researching viruses and stuff, you know, wearing the big moon suit in the laboratories and stuff. Um, and to kind of start at the very, very beginning, he first got introduced to beekeeping when he was a child. Um, when he was, and he'll, he tells the story often, that when he was young, my grandfather, so his father, was the bishop of a local congregation of our church, here in Athens. And, and at that time, one thing, our, our church is a, is a worldwide church. Each congregation would adopt a project that they would do to either raise food or raise funds that would then be donated to people locally in need of either those food or, or those funds. And the project that our local congregation adopted was beekeeping. And so my grandpa, who knew nothing about beekeeping, being the leader of the congregation, he set out to learn it, and they got a bunch of hives, they got a bunch of bees, and for quite a few years, they kept those bees, and then the honey that they would ex- extract from the hives, they donated to local people in need who were you know, getting food assistance other ways and wanted to add some honey into their diet. I and love so the it. Service pro- that's a great so, origination yeah. of how like this whole honeybee keeping thing started in your family. Yeah, and so he talks about being a, a kid in elementary school and one spring and there being a, a wild swarm of honeybees that took roost in the tree outside the school. And so they called his father in to come get it and they called him out of class and my dad is an elementary school student had to climb up into the tree and saw the branch off in order to get the swarm of bees down. Um, and so he has very vivid memories of, of that. But that actually ended up, so they did that for many years, but ultimately they ended up moving on to other projects, you know, gardens or something like that. 
And so it's not, I, I don't want to give the impression that he's been beekeeping his whole life because he has it. In fact, my family is an agricultural family based mainly around uh, beef cattle huh. and dairy cattle. And my that same grandpa had a dairy farm here. That was actually one of the main sources of business. But and are then, you guys still doing that? No, no, okay. they're not. So uh, my father ended up getting an, an education in agricultural, you know, animal sciences, as well as a lot of my uncles. And you know, we keep we keep a few cows and horses around, but uh, not on a commercial level. Okay. Uh, more just to take some responsibility over our own food and, you know, have our own source of beef. Um, That's nice. And, so, and do you also have dairy cattle where you get fresh milk and all of that? We, we do not. We okay. do not. Dairy cattle is, uh, being a dairy farmer is hard work. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to get to know very many dairy farmers. <laughs> You know, you when you're a dairy farmer, those cows they've got to get they've got to get milk twice a day, or they're going to get infected. You can't take a day off. You can't leave to go on vacation, and so um, we keep a few beef cattle around that we can. You know, if we leave for a couple of days, you can have somebody go feed them for you. It's not the end of the world, right? Um. So, but you fast forward after my father's experience beekeeping. And I end up at, I'm in law school, and I am going to the University of Georgia School of Law. Uh, so I'm a law dog. Mm -hmm. and, um, and while I'm doing it, I'm talking to I, I, my wife's family back in California. So my wife is from California, and her best friend growing up comes from a family of beekeepers, commercial beekeepers. Now there, you know, they've got 10,000 plus hives that they keep. Oh my and gosh. So as I as I'm getting to know her family, you know, we're kind of newlyweds. Uh, I'm talking to this guy and I just everything he says about him and the business is so interesting to me. It just fascinates me. And so the idea just gets stuck in my mind that man, it would be so cool to have a couple hives and get into this whole beekeeping thing. Right. And so I'm in law school and I start talking to somebody else who mentions that he's also been considering that. So the first year of law school, spring break, all of my friends go down to Florida, you know, to party it up for spring break. Meanwhile, my wife is pregnant with our first daughter. And so we can't go anywhere because she's like about to have this baby. And so all my friends go off and have fun. And so I spend spring break uh, building beehives for my first beehives. And uh, I build them, we get bees. And I just immediately fall in love with everything about it. And this friend of mine who I did it with, he wasn't, he wasn't quite as captured with it, so he ended up moving on. But that kind of sparked something within me. I, introduced, I reintroduced my father back to beekeeping. And it's just kind of, I, it's just caught hold of our heart. And honey is obviously uh, what bees produce. But in many ways, for me, the honey is the byproduct of being with the bees and helping the bees. That's my true passion. That's so interesting. You know, I had a short little opportunity to be a beekeeper myself. <laughs> I had purchased a home and the home had, I don't know what they're called, but they look like little dressers with all the drawers and they had all the bees. And there were, um, there was for sure one queen bee. I don't know if there was more than that. And, and it came with suits and smokers and <laughs> the whole thing. And the guy was like, I can show you how to do this. But I was a little like, 
I don't know if I want to do this, you know, it seemed a little overwhelming. And then one of the gentlemen who was helping do some construction at the house was a beekeeper. And he was like, can I have your bees? And he really wanted to have them. And he was telling me about how bees are kind of dying off and how important they are to, you know, just the whole environment and food and all this different stuff. So I felt like someone more responsible than me should maybe take care of them. (laughs) Anyway, so I let him take all the bees and bee suits and all the stuff. Oh, I'm sure he was very grateful. You know, bees, you know, a colony of bees is not only worth a good amount of money, but also um, for a beekeeper, it's very special to, you know, get a little influx of bees. If you ever get a chance to get back into it, though, I really recommend it, which seems counterintuitive considering I make money selling honey to other people. But I I really do encourage people to get into it, uh, even if it may cost me a couple sales and a few jars here and there. Right. Well, so tell me about how, like, you the joy that you get from the bees, because it's not just about the honey. You're saying that's a byproduct, but it's you truly enjoy the beekeeping part of it. So, what what does that bring you? Well, so bees are just fascinating. I love learning. I, I truly love learning about not just bees, anything. Uh, one of the things that drew me to your podcast was learning. Um, And bees are such fascinating creatures, and the history behind them is so fascinating that even after almost a decade of keeping bees now, I feel like I learn something new every time I'm with them or every time I open a book to read about them. And I feel like I'm fairly knowledgeable, but still I learn a lot. So that's one thing that really captures me. There's never an end to learning about bees and how we can help them. So give Um, us a couple little fun facts about bees, because that's always, (laughs) I'm intrigued. What's a fun fact? So, uh, I mean, a fun fact uh, about bees is that, you know, they are um, thermoregulators. And by that, I mean, you know, you and I are mammals. We can regulate our temperature. Right. Right. most other animals that are not mammals cannot do that. Most insects can't do that. Bees, on the other hand, have the ability to do that. They do it differently than you and me, though. Instead of um, regulating their temperature internally, they actually can do it um, by essentially they can detach their muscles and almost run in place without actually moving. The muscles move under their skin. That causes them to warm up. So during the winter, they keep their hive at somewhere around 93 degrees, no matter what temperature. Really? Uh, And and likewise, they... Is there a temperature that is too cold for them, though, where they're like, they can't do that, like a sub-zero temperature, or like, they have limits? You're not going to find bees in the Arctic. Um, Right. (laughs) So there are limits, um, but for the most part, you know, for example, in the United States, the biggest area for producing honey is... Uh, the Midwest. And so there are a lot of bees in Minnesota and Wisconsin, places that I couldn't survive being a Georgia boy. It's too cold for me. Right. Um, now, granted, you have some hives that die off during the winter, but for the most part, in areas even like that and up in Canada, lower parts of Canada, they can survive just fine. So stuff like that fascinates me, but also the history behind bees. As a beekeeper, I consider myself to be part of a bro- Brotherhood that goes back thousands of years. There are cave paintings in Spain and France that show people keeping bees using smoke, just the way I use smoke on my bees uh, now. And so, and, and the history, you know, you see, you see bees being used in ancient Greece and ancient Egypt. 
Um, and so I feel like I'm part of something that stretches back really far and that hopefully if we're careful with the way that we take care of our environment, we'll stretch forward in the future very far as well. And so really quickly, how long does a bee live? Uh, it's, and, and that's, that's a good lawyer answer. I was told. <laughs> um, it depends on a couple things. One, the time of year and also the type of bee. Um, and so by that, I mean, a queen bee will generally live um, a few years, mm-hmm. um, a, and then worker bees can live through the winter because they don't hibernate, but they do slow down their metabolism and their, and their um, biological habits, mm-hmm. so they can survive in the winter. During the height of the season, though, during the, uh, uh, during the summer and the late spring, a worker bee is usually only going to live for about a little over three weeks. Um, really? Like like most insects, they have a very short lifespan. In many ways, they kind of work themselves to death. You know, a bee in that in their entire lifespan will create one-twelfth of a tablespoon of honey. So it takes 12 bees their entire lives to create, a t- I'm sorry, a teaspoon of honey. Oh, my gosh. And, and, they, and they don't live very long during that. But the queen bee lives longer because she's not out collecting honey. She's staying in the hive, but she's working hard. She's having babies. Um, so it can depend on, and it can also depend on environmental factors as well. And so is that how um, you were mentioning before that a uh, beehive could die off over the winter? Is So by the queen bee staying alive, that she's then producing more babies. Is that how then the beehive regenerates once it gets warm again? Exactly. Okay. Um, and so- she will, she will typically, uh, if the queen can make it through and if there can be enough bees to keep the colony going, she will, uh, she'll start laying eggs again in the spring. Right now in Georgia, we're having kind of an early spring. It's, uh, it's warm out some days. And so I've already looked in to our hives and I've seen plenty of brood, which is the baby bees. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're already starting to, to lay now. They don't lay during, the queen doesn't lay during the winter. Um, but during the spring, they'll start having more babies, and and so they'll regenerate those bees that they did lose. And so, is it true then? Because we talk about this a lot, but bees work all year round in Georgia. They pollinate all year round. Not in Georgia, they don't. There are areas where they do. Um, we even though we have very mild winters here, uh, it's still a winter. Um, and now that being said, it is. It is strange that sometimes on a warm December day when I go see the bees and I see them going in and out, I will see them with a little pollen on their legs. And I don't know where they're getting it from, but obviously there is sometimes something out there for them to to get. But for the most part, we follow the same kind of um, seasonal highs and lows as other places uh, with things blooming and not blooming. We just may have a little bit of longer period and and there are times when you know it may be super warm out but things are not in bloom uh that they are uh taken from and so a lot of times the um the very late summer getting towards the fall there's not a lot in bloom even though it may still be 90 degrees around here uh so um they they have it 
Okay, so I, I got you a little bit off track there because you were because I was curious. I wanted to know about bees, but so you had this interest in bees and you shared it with your dad. And so then you guys, what, how did so you decided to go into business? But what was the general gist of what this beekeeping business would be? Was it one hundred percent with the intent of producing um, honey, or was it with the intent of you know, creating colonies that you then could maybe sell off or like, what, what is your goal with your beekeeping business? Well, so we, we don't, we don't sell bees and beekeeping equipment. Um, and we get periodically people who, because of our name may think that we do. Um, we have for the time being stuck to honey as being kind of the crux of the business. Um, in addition to being fascinated by bees, I am also fascinated by honey. It is a it is one of the most interesting food products in the world. Um, but so that is that has been our business model is to try and create with the bees, kind of work in partnership with them. They're the ones creating the honey. We're the ones marketing it. Uh, the finest honey that people can find. Um, and with that, we also work with a number of beekeepers, not just ourselves. So we have our own hives that we get our honey from here in Athens. But we also want to introduce um, different varieties of honey uh, to people who may not be aware that there even are different varieties of honey. So because of that, we work with beekeepers from all over the place, including beekeepers in South Georgia that produce gallberry honey, beekeepers in North Georgia that create sourwood honey. Even we work with beekeepers in the Midwest that create a clover honey. Uh, and each one has its own distinct individual flavor and um viscosity and color and all that is natural it just comes from the different plant source and so our idea was you know we've come to grow an appreciation for this we want to share that with other people we can't necessarily get bees into everybody's hands but we can get different types of honey into other people's hands and maybe share that excitement that we have through that way and so so you guys produce your own honey that grows in your region and then the honeys that require other plants and whatnot, you purchase that from other people then and put it under your own brand. Is that how you do that? Yeah. So you we buy wholesale. With, mm-hmm. Yeah. We partner with beekeepers that we can trust. You know, we have a number of varieties of honey that we would love to introduce that we have an opportunity to get, but we haven't quite found a beekeeper that produces that honey that we know keeps the bees in the way that we would keep them. Um, and that we can fully trust, um, you know, everything about it. And so because of that, we're very cautious about, you know, where we expand to, but we're very excited about it that when we are able to feel confident about introducing, you know, blueberry honey, that we can go forward with doing that. Right. So as you look at these other honeys, are you interested in them because they offer a variety of flavors or because maybe they have different medicinal benefits or, you know, what's, what's, why do you, or is it purely just a flavor thing? Well, flavor is a big part of it, but, you know, I, I compare it a lot to wine, which is funny because I don't actually drink, uh, but, I, but I compare it to the way other people think about wine. Um, you know, you have different varieties of, of wine. Flavor is obviously a big part, but um, a lot of things go into what makes wine enjoyable, you know, how it pairs well with different types of food. Uh, additionally, you know, French you know, sommeliers will talk about wine. And the and I'm going to butcher this because I don't speak French, but the idea of terroir, which is the idea of how the taste of an area 
will express itself in wine. You know, the taste and the of an of a different environment will express itself differently in wine. The same principle applies with honey. You know, the the environmental factors of South Georgia, for example, um, and everything that goes into creating that land and that environment expresses itself differently in how gallberry honey tastes. And and so we approach it the same way. You would pair different wines with different cheeses or different meals, and we feel the same way with honey. The flavor is there, but also how you eat it and what you eat it with. And so is that that mean the future you're looking for more honeys to introduce to your lineup? Uh, yeah, we would love, you know, we would love to have them from all over the place. Um, as long as we can, you know, guarantee that what we're, you know, what we're working with are beekeepers that are keeping their bees responsibly and that the honey is pure and raw. Every label that we have says pure and raw on it. Uh, and so that is a, uh, that's an important factor for what we do with introducing new products. Um, so, and I've also heard something about honey where it, uh, helps with allergies. So if you can get a locally grown, uh, honey to your region, that that can help you with your allergies. Is that a true, have you heard that before? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I get, I get people that talk about it all the time. And I do. I have my own personal belief that I do think that that helps, and I know that because I eat my own uh, local honey from right here uh, out of our backyard, essentially. And I believe that it has helped with our allergies. What I I do um, take caution when I when I talk about that with people, though, uh, for a couple reasons. One, allergy is a medical issue, and I'm not a medical professional. Um, and then two, I that idea has not been really fleshed out well in scientific studies. It's something that a lot of us have seen in our own, um, in our own lives, that when we eat local honey, it helps the allergies. And the idea is sound. The idea is that because honey includes small trace amounts of that pollen, that taking it little by little is going to kind of inoculate you against allergies. But what I would love to see, to be honest, would be some enterprising grad student out there do a really large sample size study that can really flesh that out and really give that some, some color. Because I do believe it's true, but it's also not backed up by the strongest, you know, double-blind study scientific evidence. Right. Well, and the, your theory, I mean, the theory also follows how they treat a lot of allergies. They give you small mm-hmm. doses of it, right? People go into the doctor's office and week after week, they're given a little shot of whatever it is their allergy is to. So it goes in concert with that. So you can see how that would make sense. I never knew any of that, actually. <laughs> no. Nope. So, I like lots of holistic medicine type stuff. And um, I just feel like a lot of times holistic medicine takes you to the origination of where your problem is and solves that versus just giving you medicine to deal with your symptoms or that type of thing. So, you know, I'm always fascinated by anything that can be done naturally. Yeah. yeah. No, and, and I, I, I truly do think that it helps. And I think that if, uh, if there was a really good scientific study, it would, it would bear that out. Um, and so I, I, I let people know that what I think about it. And then I just, you know, let them know where their honey's coming from, and, and ultimately they can make the most informed choice for themselves. It's interesting. So I see a lot of the honey. You have the the blueberry honey and the I believe it was gallberry you mentioned. So that's the bees going to those specific plants. But 
I mean, is the same thing possible for anything that blooms that you could actually pull a different flavor of honey from any fruit or vegetable that blossomed and, and the honey would taste better? Or are there certain things that the bees pollinate that don't make the honey taste good? Yes, absolutely. So, for example, around here in Georgia, and this is the same in a lot of places, in the fall, there's a flower that blooms called goldenrod. You see it along roadsides. Um, and the bees love that, and they make honey from it. But I'll tell you this, that honey is not very good. It's got, it's got a weird smell to it. I can smell when a hive is producing goldenrod honey. It's got a um, little bit of a musty smell to it. Um, and in my opinion, I don't love the flavor. There are some people out there that like it. You may get some commentator that's like, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't like goldenrod. I don't think it's good honey. But... It is fantastic for the bees. It's just as good for them as any other kind. So what I do is, is once they start making goldenrod honey, I leave that there and I let them keep that for the winter. And they can eat that all winter long. And then come spring, they can start making the good stuff that I like. <laughs> making the uh-huh. good stuff. And so, and so, I mean, is your location, was that part of your decision in terms of where to have this because of the surrounding plants? Or how did that work? I mean, the location came from, I'm from Athens, this is my home, mm-hmm. and I have a love for um, for the air. And so when I got into, I'll tell you this, Georgia is not the ideal place for beekeeping. We have some unique challenges that some other places in the country don't have. Uh, but ultimately, this is my home, and, uh, and I want the people around here to have the love for this that I have. The best way is to, is to produce honey that it's from here that they can be proud of, but also to bring in honey from other places so that people can you know, truly get that variety in there um, and see what else is out there in the world. So once you and your father recognized that this was a goal and a dream and you had a mission, how'd you go about it? You had to go and procure bees. Is that step one? <laughs> well, yeah. So by the time we decided to really make a business out of it, we were already well into the uh, keeping bees. Uh, but yes, to answer your question, if somebody's interested in getting into beekeeping, there you gotta find some. You gotta find some bees, and the way you do that is there are bee breeders. And so I've got a bee guy that uh, that he doesn't produce honey. He all he does is breed bees to sell them, and and so that's how somebody would get started. By the time we got into really wanting to do a business out of it, we were well past that into the keeping our own bees. Um, and so really for us at that point, step one was figuring out how the heck you start and run a business like this. Because as I said, both of our backgrounds are far from the food industry. And so uh, a lot of research into how to go about doing something that seems so foreign to us. And so how do you measure the size of a bee farm? Is it based on the number of queens you have or is it based on the total number of bees, or is it based on the output of honey you can produce? How do you measure the size of a bee farm? Well, so measuring the size, you would probably do so by the number of hives. So each hive has a queen. Um, so each, each, uh, each colony, each hive of bees has one queen. So you wouldn't generally do it by measuring the queen. You do it by measuring the, the bees uh, the, or the, the number of colonies, the number of beehives. But ultimately, the way you measure that is, a few things. One, output of honey. You know, two, being able to sell that honey, and three, whether you're able to keep your bees alive and going 
just like any other agricultural farm. So what happens when the queen dies then? Do you, you don't need to reintroduce a new queen. Does a queen from the colony take over? Because I, I, I don't exactly know how that works. Now you're getting into the interesting stuff. <laughs> okay. Um, so there's one queen, and she is, she is a female. All other worker bees are also female, but they're different. They look different. They act different. Uh, the queen bee is larger, longer, uh, very easy to identify. And all the other, are, while they're females, they're not having babies for the most part. Only the queen usually is. Um, and when either a queen dies or when a queen is close to dying, um, they will raise up a new queen. And, what, and the way they do that is they will take one of the larvae, one of the eggs that she um, hatches. They will feed it a substance called royal jelly, which is a substance they produce in beehive. And essentially that will create a new queen. Uh, so if one dies, the bees will, if they, if they have fresh eggs, they will create a new queen to survive. So um, how do you multiply? Like if you want to grow and have more colonies, how do you get more queen bees without having, obviously you can't have one die off and just have a new one come. You want to have multiple ones. So how do you produce more queens? Well, so uh, so once again, I when I need a queen, like if I have a if I have a hive that loses a queen and I want to reintroduce one, I have a like I said a bee guy that he breeds up queens and I'll get one from him. But the way that he does that uh, is and, and the way that you know, we've done that also is when the when the beehive is replacing a queen, they will do so by having a laying a bunch of queen eggs essentially. Uh, they hedge their bets. They don't just lay one because that one may die and then they would be queenless. So they do a bunch and then the, the strongest one becomes a queen and the other ones are honestly killed off. Uh, and so to get other queens to introduce is we just, just take those other ones before they're killed off by the hive. And you end up with a number of queen beads that you can then reintroduce into other, uh, into other hives that may need it. And did you say that was called the royal jelly? Yeah. So it's like hawk juice. They basically <laughs> hawk juice the bee. It becomes larger. Yeah. I mean, they, they, it, it is a fascinating substance. It, is, it, it has its own medicinal benefits to, uh, to human beings. It's not produced en masse because uh, the bees aren't producing it en masse. But you will find some products that will have royal jelly in it or something. A lot of beauty products. Um, may have it but yeah they essentially they can create a queen bee but the timing has to be right they got to have eggs that are the right age um and you know have the right food and stuff because they may if they lose a queen bee and they don't have those you know the, the whole hive would be in danger of dying and where's royal jelly come from <laughs> the bees i mean they they, they have a they have a they have a, a gland where they can produce that the same way as honey. They just don't, uh, or the same way as wax. They just don't do it on a, on a large basis. Okay. Oh, that's so cool. So then yeah. if you see it in, in um, cosmetic products from time to time, how are they producing it on a larger scale to put, to have it? Well, so available? they can produce, I mean, they can, a larger scale of Royal gen, jelly is pretty small still. And uh -huh. so when you see it in, in beauty products, it's not a large amount. It's a little bit here and there. It's not like honey, which is where you pull out a frame of, from the beehive and it's just dripping with honey. The royal jelly is more um, these, these bee breeders 
are collecting a little here, a little there. And they're able to get a, a, a pretty large amount over time, but it takes a while. And so because of that, it's kind of an expensive product. Um, but it has a lot of benefits. Okay. And so are there no, so you mentioned the worker bees are female and then the queens are obviously female, but are there male bees in the hive? There are, they are drone bees. That is what they're called. They're called drones. They look different. They're bigger. They've got these big funny eyes. They're kind of goofy. Um, (laughs) They're the male bees and their entire existence. I mean, really what they're good for is eating and, um, (laughs) <laughs> and in the queen and that's about it so i mean they're not too different from human males uh in in their usefulness no i'm just I'm <laughs> but, yeah i know i'm getting the look from Deborah I, over here. I know we're having fun i'm like uh-huh sounds about right no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. but really i mean that's what they do is they um they're they don't produce honey they don't go pollinate flowers they stay in the hive and when the when it's time for the um for the queens to reproduce, they do their job. Um, but then when it comes time towards the fall where, you know, they're getting ready for the winter and they have to make some tough choices as to who's going to get to stick around during the, um, during the winter, they don't want drones consuming all the resources. So they will take the vast majority of drones and kick them out of the hive to die. Um, wow. That's right. It is rough, right? I mean, yeah. it's kind of a rough deal. But, I mean, there's a purpose. There are limited resources. The bees have to ration those. And since during the winter, they don't really produce much or do anything to help, most of them get kicked out. They need to keep a few around so that when the spring comes, there's, there can be new dads. Oh, that's so interesting. And so what bees actually protect the hive then and, and sting? Is that the worker bees? Yeah, so the worker bees, they will actually um, have different roles throughout their life. Um, and they have names for them. There's like the nurse bees, uh, which uh, take care of the babies and feed them. There are undertaker bees, that's their name. And their job is to take any bees that have died out the front door and throw them out of the hive. <laughs> uh, and there are scout bees that go out and find you know places where there's honey. And then, yeah, just the worker bees. Now, all these, you need to realize, are the same bees. And they will move from being a nurse, or, uh, a nurse bee to a, uh, an undertaker bee to the ones that go out and uh, pollinate flowers and, and get nectar. It's the same worker bees, just at various times of their life, they do different jobs. They it's, just wear different hats. Are, <laughs> yeah. It's the ultimate and, business and cross-training. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's a lot to be learned from them in terms of business management and efficiency and all sorts of things. I mean, it's interesting. If you don't, if you don't make your way, um, you're getting kicked out of the hive, basically, as a drone bee. Mm-hmm. And, and every bee has a purpose or a job for the efficiency and the survival of the hide, a hive. Yep. And that being said, and when the queen or the basically the CEO, I'm imagining, of the whole hive is getting ready to pass they're making sure that they're bringing a, a new one yeah have a successor exactly and one of my one of the things that i learn a lot from them for business and things that people don't realize we think of a beehive as being a monarchy because we call it a queen 
but really in some respects they act more like a democracy um and in fact there's a there's a fantastic book i recommend and i cannot remember the author's name it's called honeybee democracy and it's all about how when a beehive needs to find a new home they swarm and they go find a new place to live they actually treat that decision-making process as a democracy. Bees will go out, um, find candidates for where they should live, you know, candidate sites. They'll come back and they essentially tell the hive, uh, and then the hive will actually vote on where they should go. And this is all observed, and this book is fascinating, you know, the scientific observations that prove that this is what happens. Um, and they almost all... In fact, uh, they almost always choose the most efficient location out of whatever candidate sites they're given. And so there's a lot to be said for, you know, listening to those around you and those that you maybe consider, um, you know, under you, even if you're at the top of the, of the food, changing, food chain in your business, uh, listening to what they have to say and you know, acting on that, not just on yourself. So how do you observe bees voting like what does that how i mean how can they tell that there's actually a vote being taken like i don't know how you observe that deborah's brain and it's smoking it's right now really get to um the minutia of that because it's a very sensitive book but basically the ways the way that bees communicate with each other about like a new nectar source like hey here's a bunch of flowers over here we should go pollinate is they do it through like interpretive dance it's called a waggle dance they come back and they've actually deciphered how the waggle dance shows what, you know, where this is. And so essentially these bees that go out and they find the new locations of where they think we should move to will come back. They will do the waggle dance. And so you'll have different bees doing different waggle dances showing where they should go. And the way they've observed the voting is the bees that were there that did not go out will essentially copy the dance of the bee that they are voting for. The location that's oh, amazing i know deborah's daughter has to do a paper on where a dance originated from that might be a good idea though the bee waggle dance that would oh, probably yeah. be really fascinating i bet oh, everyone yeah. else would be thinking of like line dancing and you know things like that and she could talk about the bees waggle dance yeah and, and i mean this goes back long before any human dance it's an interesting i i saw something that said that talking about essentially what they are is they're uh all women feminine society who communicates with one another via interpretive dance. That's amazing. And all of them have the interest of the colony first. I think that's another part of that. I, I hear and that the reason their hives can be so successful is all of them are putting themselves into the, the hive to make sure the hive survives. It's not a, a selfish society and in those decisions on the best places to go, they're all deciding and listening to each other because they all have the best intent for the hive in mind. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, everything they do is not necessarily for their own survival. In fact, these bees work themselves literally to death in order to provide for the hive. And when they sting somebody or something that they feel is a threat to the hive, that action kills the individual. I mean, they they are fully devoted to the good of the hive. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, as we were talking about stinging, people tend to have really big fears around being stung. And so what advice do you have for someone when a bee comes around? You know how people kind of scream and they run away or like, what's the best thing to do? 
just calm down. Just, you know, I mean, it, get away from them, yes, but just stay calm. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I fell in love with beekeeping is I was in law school, which is a very stressful time. I was in law school. Had, I was having my first child. It's a very anxiety-producing time. And I found that when I went out with the bees, it forced me to remain calm and to just slow down. Because if you act out of fear and if you're acting in that way, they know that. And they're going to respond in kind. And if you can just calm down, for the most part, you will be okay. And I found that to be very calming at a time in my life when I needed that. And I still do, you know. I mean, being an attorney is a stressful job. And being out with the bees forces you to kind of find a little bit of momentary inner peace. So that's what I recommend. If you've got bees or a bee after you, yes, seek safety, but just stay calm. That's cool. And, you know, it's good get good advice because sometimes you see people really panic and you're like, ah, don't swat at it, you know, like you're going to make them mad. But, yeah. So on a daily basis, what does beekeeping look like? I mean, do you have to tend to them on a daily basis or you just have to kind of deal with it when it's time and they've done all their pollinating and it's time to retrieve the honey? Or how You know, that- once again, it depends on the time of year. During the winter, we're not as much in the hive working with them. As we are right now, where you know it's springtime, um, now as things are really heating up, the bees are expanding. You know, we may determine that a, a hive needs to be split into two separate hives in order to make for that expansion. Um, and so, right now, we try and get out to every hive on a regular basis, you know, once a week or something. During the winter, we keep an eye on them, but for the most part, we let them be. You know, let them stay in there. And the winter is kind of our time to do a little bit more business development, do some preparations for the spring so that we're not caught off guard by all the work that we have to do. Well, and so why don't you tell the audience where they can find your products? Yeah, so you can find it online at classiccitybee.com. Um, additionally, we work with a bunch of other, a bunch of local, mostly North Georgia um, locations with we work with striplings. There's a local um, gas station um, line called Golden Pantry. Our biggest one that we've started working with recently is Publix. Uh, Publix has been a fantastic partner for local businesses with their Georgia local section. And so if you go to any Publix in the state of Georgia that has a Georgia local section, you can find our hunt. And when you have other uh, honeys, it still comes under your brand, right? When you have different flavors and all of that, that's still found on your websites yes and i love that you you know partner with other companies and whatnot i think that's a really i love seeing that in in entrepreneurs when they work together and um, to help promote each other's companies or to use each other's products to make their product line better or more you know fully robust and so i love hearing those stories so anyway so now you you and your father have been in business together how long have you been doing this well We've been keeping bees for about nine years. We have we formed Classic City Bee Company in the summer of 2016, um, and so that's when we really started uh, working towards building as a as a brand and as a business. And so from there, um, obviously, it's not easy to form a company and come up with a logo and come up with a name. Um, how did you go about all that, the name, the logo, 
and all of that. Well, so the logo I had stuck in my mind for quite some time. And the reasoning is because our logo is actually not 100% unique. It's borrowed from a, a very old um, design called the Napoleonic Bee. So our logo is a bee with a crown over its head. And in fact, if you, if you go into any French restaurant or store or if you go visit France, you may see the, that symbol uh, drawn differently in, in various different ways. Napoleon himself wore that hat on his robe. That's why it's called the Napoleonic Bee. And it's a symbol of um, resurrection and eternal life, essentially. And it just always fascinated me and uh, that symbol. And so that was always stuck in my mind. And when it came time to, um, to name our company, we went with Classic City Bee Company because we are from Athens, which is the classic city. But also we want our name to be something that people from our hometown would understand what it's a reference to, but people from everywhere uh, could relate to because, you know, whether you live in Athens, Georgia or Philadelphia or Sacramento, California, you can make where you live a classic city for you. Um, and so we wanted people to be able to feel that the classic city for them could be anywhere that they were. Um, even if it has some personal meaning to us in this area. So considering it's a partnership, I mean, did you guys throw around lots of different ideas or did you kind of come to this and you both were like, yep, that's it. Or did you guys have yeah. to l debate a little bit? You know, we wanted, we wanted something to reference our hometown. And so we talked about something with Athens or something. Um, our worry was uh, from a marketing standpoint that that would limit it so that we could only be a local company. Um, and while we love our, our, our locale and our community, we have bigger plans for that, uh, for, for who we are and where we're going to be. And so we, so we did throw around various different things. I can't even remember some of the other ones. Um, you know, but we ultimately decided to go with something that could reference our hometown but could be applicable to wherever someone might be. And so when you talk about you guys had bigger ideas, what are some of those ideas and, you know, have they changed or, you know, now that you're actually doing this, but what, where do you want to take this company? You know, we want to be the destination for somebody who wants high quality honey. Um, and we are, we feel like we're heading in that direction, especially here in Georgia, but we ultimately want it to, we want people everywhere to know that when they buy classic city bee company honey that they're buying high quality um pure raw honey um, and ultimately we would like to be able to offer honey uh, for people in different locations so somebody from let's say houston we one day want to be able to get a houston local classic city bee company honey by working with beekeepers in houston that's just, that's an example we, we're not currently doing that but our hope is that one day that we can be that destination if somebody can be in Athens, Georgia, enjoying their local Athens Classic City Select honey and can move to Portland, Oregon and also get Classic City Bee Company honey that may be, you know, a Portland Select, but working with local beekeepers there. That's kind of our goal is to one day work with beekeepers all over the country to experience that and so i mean so in contemplating that you you know the size you'd have to grow the number of colonies of bees you'd have to have um you know do, in taking all of that into consideration 
I mean, one, where are you now? Like, do you have to hire other employees to help you run what you have going so far? And what would that look like down the road in terms of how big is that and, you know, accounting departments and, you know, things like that? I mean, obviously, with any type of growth, there's going to be a, a need for um, for more people to be involved. Right now, it's me and my father. We do everything. We do accounting. We do beekeeping. Uh, we do business development. Um, but as we grow, especially hopefully as we grow into other markets, we'll need to be able to work with people who know those markets, who um, know the distribution in those markets. Because, you know, we want to work with, to use the example of Houston. We want to be able to work with uh, beekeepers in Houston without having to bring everything back here and do everything here and then ship back out there. We want to keep that, you know, local to that area. And so um, it, w- it will require working with people um, and ultimately hiring people in different markets who are able to, to understand the various different logistics of working there. Right. You know, and I know pretty much everyone who starts out as an entrepreneur, you typically start out and it's a very small crew, if any at all. And like you said, it's just you and your father. So you end up doing every aspect of the business. And so as you think about growth and whatnot, what are the parts you love doing that you don't ever want to let go of? And what are the parts that you're like, eh, really not my favorite part. And I would love to hire someone to do that part. I really enjoy the business development. I enjoy going out and and working with our local retail partners, working with, you know, developing those relationships. And that's something that I hope that I'll be able to continue doing um, all the time. I may not be involved in every relationship in the future, uh, but I hope to be able to be actively involved in that aspect of the business. The minutia of, um, you know, accounting and stuff like that, uh, <laughs> I don't think anybody other than accountants really love that. And that's fine. That's why there are accountants. And so honestly, the, the minutia that keeps me away from either face-to-face relationship with my bees or face-to-face relationship with other people are things that ultimately one day I would hope that I can bring someone else on to take care of. Right. And so like from a marketing standpoint, as you guys, like, how do you go about marketing your company? Do you have a budget you put towards that? Do you do it solely through social media? You know, do you involve yourselves in farmers markets? Uh, Or do you, you know, cold call and go into stores and sample people? Like, how do you try and get your product out there? Well, essentially everything you just said. (laughs) All of the above. We try and stay very active on social media, especially Instagram, uh, which we found because people are very interested in seeing the business behind the business and seeing the bees. And that has been a great medium for uh, showcasing photos and videos of of the actual beekeeping that takes place behind their honey. That's been a a huge aspect for us. Um, You know, additionally, we do some online, you know, advertising uh, via Facebook, via uh, Google. Uh, but then also, honestly, for building the, and, and that helps with the individual customer that may go on and order, you know, some jars here or there from our website. Uh, but for working with uh, the, the, the stores, honestly, we do cold contact. We go, we show them why we think that, uh, that our honey will feed on their shelf. Um, and, and, and we build that relationship with them on a personal level. Additionally, additionally, we have a number, we, you know, we go to a number of shows, some farmers markets, a lot of food shows, you know, this upcoming, you know, we go to 
um, the food and wine festivals around here. And there you have individuals who are buying product, but you also have a lot of people in the industry who are there to see what's going on. And so we get some face-to-face time with people that way. And so when you do your social media and stuff, did you have a specific target in mind? Because I noticed you have quite a bit of followers for only the three years you've been online. So how did you go about making sure? Did you use hashtags? Did you just use content and attract people? Was it word of mouth? Because comparatively to a lot of other businesses we have on the show, uh, your social media content for or followers for three years is more significant than, than everyone else's. So a compliment there for sure. But what, you know, what does that look like and how have you gone about it? So our first rule of our social media on Instagram is having good content, having content that people want to see. Um, something that makes person makes somebody want to do that double tap on their screen and like it. Because on that social media, the more interactions you have with something, the higher you get on their algorithm and showing up in other people's uh, feed. And so that's our number one, is putting things on there that actually make somebody want to comment or like. Um, the, the next thing is posting often. You know, my wife actually helps a lot with, with my social media because honestly she's more adept at that than I am. And, and her kind of rule of thumb is trying to get a post up there at least once a day. Um, something so that we're maintaining in front of people. Um, and then on top of that, to, to gain followers, honestly, we, we find accounts. And we use a number of hashtags. Uh, we find accounts that are uh, targeting similar demographics. Uh, we're seeing the people that are um, engaging with their accounts, both liking and commenting. And honestly, we engage with those people directly by following them or, or you know, liking their thing or that. Or their picture or their video and uh and that has been the biggest thing you know because you know you can create all the best quality content you you can you can have the best looking instagram or facebook but ultimately if people aren't don't know you're there it doesn't help so we go out and we find them digitally by finding these other accounts that are targeting similar and we interact with their with their followers and are there are things they, you've tried that up. oh i'm sorry go ahead no, I was saying, and and they follow us back once they once we get in front of their face, and they can see, oh, well, who is this? Wow, they've got a cool feed. They follow us back. Right. And are there things you guys have tried that you're like, okay, that really didn't work? And you know, because I think a lot of entrepreneurs are always trying new things, and it's a big trial and error. And so, do you have advice for people on that front in terms of like where areas that maybe you haven't found great success? Um, yeah, I mean, we have, and I'm trying to really put my finger on, on the thing, but we've had, we've had some shows and, you know, there are a number of industry shows that you'll go to one and you'll just get, make so many contact and you'll go to another one that for some reason just seems to be a dud or you realize they're not targeting the people you thought they were targeting and you just make an adjustment and say, you know what, next year, we're probably not going to go to this one. We'll use that time to you know take a look at another one. Um, yeah, mainly that. And, yeah, they, and, you know, when we put money into, into online advertisements, some of them have been, have been great and some of them have been a bust and we, we tweak it. It usually has to deal with how we're presenting our content. And so 
it, it's funny what a little minor tweak of you know that 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 Google ad didn't wasn't as successful as we thought we were. Well, here maybe we'll change a couple of the you know tags, a couple of the um, keywords, see what that does, and then all of a sudden it spikes up. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so that being said, if you could go back to 2016, what are some of the things you tell yourself uh, to help yourself along that you know now that you wish you knew then? So, yeah, I think that the thing that I would tell myself most would be just don't be afraid to go ask questions from somebody who knows. You know, that has been a big thing that I've found, you know, reaching out to other food entrepreneurs. Um, a lot of which are not direct competitors of mine. You know, I'm, I'm doing honey, and so we reached out to some people who made barbecue sauce that we really loved what they were doing. You know, hey, how do you do this? You know, what what'd you, find, what'd you find with that? And almost always, they're eager to answer those questions. Yeah, I and, think that's great advice. I mean, so many people are afraid to ask and are driven by that fear. But the reality is most people really authentically, one, they love to talk. Most people love telling their stories and whatever. And so, you know, I think it's a huge compliment, too, when you turn to someone and say, hey, can you help me with this? I think people really, it makes them feel good that you trust them to ask them questions. Yeah, and, you know, we, you know, and, and, and we suffered from that where, you know, finally one time I, you know, asked them, I can't remember what it was. Asked, asked for some advice from somebody that I didn't even know. And they gave me the advice that I could have used, you know, six months before. And I just kicked myself and said, why, why didn't I do that earlier? Um, and every time that we've reached out, generally they're very happy. And when we first got started, I was an attorney. My dad was a lab researcher. You know, we had a simple question of how the heck do you even get a label made? Like who prints those and who, who can you get to design it? I have an idea in my mind. We reached out to somebody who was not in the same industry as us, but was in kind of the same area and was a food entrepreneur. And we asked them. They gave us the contact for who designed their labels and who printed them. We called them up, and we had labels being printed in, you know, two weeks. That's amazing. And so from there, tell us a little bit about some of the things you've struggled with. I I know that maybe uh, working as a lawyer and as a beekeeper, so... I guess one is some, what are some of the things you've struggled with, but two, how do you manage your time uh, basically having two professions? So, I mean, the thing that I struggle most, most with is uh, the learning curve of the industry because none of my formal training deals with what I'm doing. And even my informal training as a beekeeper does not help in, uh, you know, getting a product to market. And so the learning curve um, has always been a struggle and it's always required that I um, have to just consume as much as I can from blogs and articles and books and talking with people, uh, which takes time, but, but also learning from that, you know, you, you think you got something down and you fill out the wrong form and you have to redo everything again. And uh, so that's been the biggest struggle. Um, and honestly, the only thing that I've found that combats that is just putting in the time to learn those things um, and not trying to just you know, shoot from the hip. Um, and I find that as I, as I do that, as I really invest that time, it makes it easier down the road. Now, in terms of juggling between the two professions, 
you know, I'm an attorney. I have a duty to my clients. So I have to, when I'm, I'm giving them everything, I have to give them everything. Uh, I took an oath to do that. Um, and so I don't uh, do the two together, you know, I, which means that during the day, during the weekday, I have to, I have to kind of put the, uh, the business development of the, of the B world uh, aside um, and focus on that, you know, where I can nights, weekends, and maybe other times during the day when I can. Um, but also what I found is really important for me in maintaining that balance is also giving a good amount of time to my, what I call my third and real profession, which is being a father and a husband. Um, my family has been so supportive throughout this whole process. It would be unfair for me to not give them the time that they need. Uh, I have three, I have three daughters, uh, seven, four and two years old. Um, <laughs> You're a busy man. I, I am busy. And, and unfortunately, you know, in developing this, it does mean that a lot of Saturdays at various different shows or, or meetings or something, I do have to miss this or that. Uh, but there are also plenty of Saturdays where I say, you know what, I'm just not going to be able to do that show. My daughter's got a you know ballet recital or something. And I find that that's really important. One of the best pieces of advice I got when I was in law school from a law professor talking about juggling family and career was um, he, he likened it to a, a juggling act where you're juggling glass balls and rubber balls. And you have to know that sometimes you're going to have to let one drop. And when you do let one drop, let the rubber one drop. It'll bounce back. But there are certain balls that are glass, and if you let them drop, they're just not going to bounce back. And his message was essentially, you know, your family, your kids, those are, those are glass balls. If you drop them, they're not going to bounce back. And I think about that with, uh, with, with my business is ultimately I'm doing this for them. I'm doing this uh, so that they can see me doing something that I'm, I'm happy and so they can have a, a, a better life. So if I, if I let them fall by the wayside, it, you know, what, what am I even doing it for? And, and that, that's a challenge, but I, I find that if I keep my eye focused on what I'm doing and if I realize that no success that I have in business is going to compensate for failure in the home, it honestly keeps me focused when I am working on the business. I so think that's would, great advice. Yeah, I agree. So would you say that that's what motivates you every day and, and keeps you going is your family and your daughters and, and your wife? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there are a number of motivations. I love also doing things that bring me joy and make me happy. But ultimately, that's for them, too. You know, I want my daughters one day to do things that make them happy. And if they grow up seeing their their father really throwing himself into a, a career and a business that brings him joy, I think they're going to be more likely to do so when it comes time for them to make those choices. Well, and I think it's good as a, a male role model to daughters, and I only have basically stepdaughters, but... The showing like what a male should be like helps them pick the right male also and leading by that example and being happy and, and, you know, working hard for your family. So I really commend that for sure. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, uh, there's a, there's a talk given by uh, a, a lady in our church one time that she uh, was talking about how to raise daughters. And she said that the, the most important thing you can do to raise daughters is to love, 
of their mother because they will they will learn from that how they should be treated and the kind of things they should look for in the future. Yeah, I agree with that 100% actually. And I had a lot of that in my, my own education in high school. I went to an all-boys Catholic school. But a lot of what they taught us was that relationship with your wife or girlfriend and how that would be passed down to your daughters and even your sons and how they should treat women. So I really like that mm-hmm. we just discussed it. It's for a totally other podcast, but it's um, <laughs> right. probably for a motivational Monday. But the thing is, um, you know, it is the thing I think that inspires a lot of people and motivates a lot of people is their family and, and wanting to to have the legacy not only to be the business but the legacy to be what they can learn from from the business and from us doing the business and the independence it brings and the ability to make your own decisions and your own destiny for example absolutely and so um on a on another note so what are some of the things that you feel um would better the better your business? What are some of the things that you're looking for to help you grow? And what are some of the things that you feel are necessary for you to achieve that growth? Um, so both the things that I'm looking for and the things that I think will help me get there are relationships. You know, being able to streamline distribution or, um, or working with bees or um, really anything in our business is going to require that I develop a relationship with people that are experts in knowing how to do that. Um, and so honestly, that's what I'm always looking for. I'm always looking for, Oh, can I have that person's number? Can I have that person's email? Uh, wh- what's his name? But in order to get that, I also, I have to develop relationships. So it's kind of this weird cyclical thing where what I really need are getting to know and, and continuing to get to know people who are, are at a high level of what they're doing in whatever field that's going to benefit me. And the way I'm going to do that is by developing relationships with the people I meet and get to know. Um, because that will help me cut down on the learning curve, which, you know, I always, even though I'm a few years into this now, because it wasn't part of my formal education, I'm still experiencing the, the growing pains of that learning curve. So I'm looking to, as I grow, be able to work with people who don't have that learning curve. They know what they're doing. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, a few of the entrepreneurs, whether it's on the recording or as we, we get off, have talked about how the there's not an actual way for all of them to communicate with each other. And we're trying to do it on the podcast, which is get the message out there and have people learn from one another. But the piece that's missing is those relationships. So you know, as we move on with the podcast, one of the things that someone suggests to us is how do we then take the people that have been on the podcast and bring them together in environments and in a structure that you guys can communicate with each other and learn from each other and directly ask questions to with each other. We haven't quite figured that part out yet, but it is on there. So I'm glad you mentioned it because I think like we're doing a great job of getting everyone's message out there and we're creating this environment of people to learn from each other. But now how do we build the relationships so you guys can communicate with one another or people that are not necessarily on the podcast that may have something that they feel could help you or you could help them. How do we, you know, cultivate that relationship as well? So 
it's been very interesting. And with the world flattening in technology, I think there's probably a few different ways or, uh, you know, some way of everyone getting together. We're just not there yet. We're still at the very beginning of stages of just getting the podcast organized and, and out every week. So, but I'm glad you mentioned that because I do think that that's the most important piece and people don't realize that social media are just marketing. It's not quite enough. A lot of what we learn is in the relationships we have with people. And, you know, we talk about it on the podcast also is the willingness for me to give to someone else. You never know when you're truly helping someone. Like you said, you <laughs> needed an answer six months ago and you finally asked it. And, and the person really helped you when you needed help uh, by just telling you. And that person probably didn't put as much emphasis into it as you took from receiving it. And I think that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And so, um, as we start to wrap up here, um, what I want to, you know, if someone has an interest or wants to build a relationship with you or, or a partnership or figure out how to cross pollinate their products with your pol products, I use cross pollinate on purpose. <laughs> yeah, and, and, um, how do, how would they get a hold of you? And, and, you know, are you interested in those relationships and, and, and what's the best way to communicate with you? Oh, I am absolutely interested in, in those relationships. And the best way, honestly, is via email for me. Uh, because, because of my, of my career as, as an attorney, I can't always pick up the phone for, from, uh, Classic City B Company. But I'll, I'll always respond to an email. So people can either reach out to me at doyle at classiccitybe.com or they can go on our website, classiccitybe.com, and there's a message section that goes directly to my email because, like I said, I do everything. It doesn't go to some secretary or something. Yeah, and the other thing is I know that you're a, um, part of the Flavor of Georgia that's coming up as well and and that experience. So I definitely want to get you back on the podcast so we can talk about your Flavor of Georgia experience. But just out of curiosity, um, are you nervous and how is that going? I know Deborah and I are always um, participants in and I often judge it, but how has that been for you? So I, I know it's going to sound, uh, I don't know, conceited. I'm not nervous um, because I'm just re really honored to be a part of it. <laughs> and uh, and the product that we have in it is a new product that we are introducing. It's actually not even available on our site just yet. It will likely be available in the next two to three weeks. Uh, but we've spent a lot of time developing it. It's smoked honey, mm -hmm. um, which is our first entrance into actually manipulating honey up until now everything that we've sold has been from hive to table um and this is a, a product we're very excited about smoked honey that it's honey that has been cold smoked the way you might smoke a cheese or salmon or something like that so it really infuses that kind of hickory smoke flavor into the honey and makes it a very dynamic food product that can be used for a number of different things um and so I'm not as much nervous as I am just really excited to introduce it to the world because the flavor of Georgia is in many ways our introduction of this to the world. We submitted it and I felt like this product was so good and unique. I wasn't even nervous that we were going to be named a finalist. I assumed that we would because it's so good and unique. When, when I got the email that we were named a finalist, it was really more just a confirmation of what I thought was going to happen. Now, that being said, and actually winning in our in our category of honey, not quite as confident because the other two that are up 
are from two fantastic companies that make great products that have kind of exciting things themselves. So more, I'm just very excited to be a part of it and introduce the world to Smoke Tony. Yeah, I don't think out of the three years so far I've done the judging, so this will be year number four that I've ever actually successfully pick the winners i i have a little bit of a different flavor profile i guess than georgia that's why i'm unique but um well that case, you don't uh vote for mine yeah, no I, <laughs> I i try to be as honest as i can and and what i like and what i don't like but generally i will say there is not a product ever in the flavor of georgia that i've ever disliked i mean i eat every bite because i don't want to waste every food it also puts 10 to fifteen thousand calorie ten thousand to fifteen thousand calories into my body in one day but <laughs> it is it's one of the best things i i honestly i don't think there's anything like it and just over the four years we've been involved in it now, um, seeing how many more people are entering products in and making it to those final levels and, and how competitive it has been and, and people's dedication to it, I think that's, that's huge. And just getting to be a finalist is a huge validation of your product uh, for the market. So I'm definitely excited for you guys. But how did you come up with the concept of smoked honey? I'm sure I'll hear it at the Flavor of Georgia, but I'm just curious. How did the smoking honey come into something that you were going to do? So I, we are not the first people to smoke honey. And so I don't want to try and give that impression. Uh, but it did come to me independently. It's not like I saw smoked honey on a shelf somewhere and thought, oh, I want to do that. Um, it, uh, I love barbecuing. I, I will smoke a, a pig shoulder or some ribs uh, for a game or something. It, it's uh, kind of a side passion line. I love it. And a lot of times I will use honey as a base for a sauce or I'll use it as a glaze if I'm you know, smoking a turkey or ham or something like that. And I just when we very first started, so like three years ago, I was thinking to myself, um, man, I would really love to get that smoke flavor into the honey itself so that you could have that flavor on any product not just what you were making a smoker and so it just kind of came to me while thinking about that about, i would love to have this flavor you know on my ice cream or my pizza or on salmon that i cook indoors not on the grill and so it came to me and so of course the first thing i did is i started to do some research there are some companies out there that make the smoked honey but only three that i found and they're all kind of smaller market not really um making a kind of big deal about it and so i thought oh well maybe it's not as good as i thought it was because if it was it'd be a huge thing by now so i started trying it out myself and just experimenting with it and i loved it i said why is why is this not being made and marketed on a large level and you know i would let people try it and everybody just loved it so we moved into scaling that up into a, a system that we can, you know, where it's not just in my backyard smoker, and uh, so that we can introduce it to the world. And I think you guys are going to love the flavor. I think that's great because one of the things that I want everyone to hear as the audience or entrepreneurs is that the little, you know, it takes time before we really, in experimentation, before we start really differentiating products that really the market grabs onto and a smoked honey sounds like one of those products that people are going to grab onto because it's out there but it's just not you know we don't know why or we don't you know it hasn't been marketed or whatever and so having you do it and being it three years into your journey 
I think it's the right timing because you have all the experience of just doing the regular unmanipulated honey to use your word and taking that to the next level. I'm, I'm very interested to see where it goes and how you do in the flavor Georgia for sure. How are you going to showcase it? Are you going to serve it by itself or are you going to put it on, on something? Uh, you know, we are still wrestling with that. We're, we're about a week and a half away and we, the prop, my biggest problem is that everything I've tried it on, I've loved. And I can't, I can't do everything there. And right. so, um, so we may end up doing a couple different things, um, cheese, uh, maybe some, some meat like chicken or salmon to showcase the different things you can use on it. Honestly, one of my favorite ways to eat it, I was eating it right before I got on to record this with you is, uh, on vanilla ice cream with crushed pecan. Oh my God. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I can't yeah. wait to try it. You know, Justin does the judging, but I kind of go around and talk with everyone. It's such a great group of people. And, you know, at this point, it's just really fun to go back because at this point there's definitely a lot of familiar faces. And so, you know, it's like getting to go see old friends and stuff. And I love seeing how so many of the different companies all work together and they too have friendships. And uh, so it's definitely a fun event to go to. And, uh, I really can't wait to try it. <laughs> You see how that works, right? I get to be the mean, grimmest judge, like hard on everyone, <laughs> scary, and Deborah gets around to go be friendly and build relationships with everyone. So, oh, well, you've got the perfect good cop, bad cop. <laughs> right, it's perfect. I know a lot of training. So, um, <laughs> so that being said, I just want to thank you, Doyle, for being on the podcast and bringing Classic City B to us. Um, we're definitely going to have you back on. Like I said, I want to do a a post episode of the flavor of Georgia. Cause we are going to try to get all the finalists on and talk about their experience and do a specific podcast for each of them about the flavor of Georgia. Cause I think it's such a major event. And with Deborah and I being such a part of it, we love giving back to it and helping promote it and promote the, the mm -hmm. contestants for lack of a better term or the food entrepreneurs mm -hmm. that are in there. So thank you again very much. No, thank you. I've loved being on here here i'd love to come back hopefully i can come back talking about how good it was to win in our category <laughs> in georgia but even if not uh i would love to come back and talk to you more yeah and we definitely look forward to meeting you in person and um and definitely seeing where we can maybe help out or where our relationship goes or introduce you to other people that may be uh that could benefit from your products as well and and things like that so I Absolutely. look forward to that as well. Um, if anyone in the audience likes what we're doing and they like what we're doing with the podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Tell someone about what we're doing. If you have interest being on the podcast, do what Doyle did. He just reached out to me and said he'd love to be on the podcast. He had listened to a few, uh, reached out to us, and he's on the podcast right now. So please, if you're interested in being on, reach out to us. We'd be happy to put you on the podcast. Also, if you like what we're doing and you don't want to be on the podcast, at least share it with your friends and family and let people know what we're doing and how we're giving back. And if you like honey, you know, please look up ClassicCityBee.com and order some honey off his website. Uh, I have tried some before, and um, so I did. I am aware of it, and it is very good, as all most honey is. I would say I don't. I'm not a connoisseur of any sort, but. I believe that there are better make, kinds of honey. Go ahead. I said we'll we'll make you a connoisseur. By the time you're done uh, with with our smoked honey, you'll be a you'll be a honey connoisseur. Yeah, I've never tried it that way. And actually, 
as ignorant as I am, actually, until I did the Flavor of Georgia contest uh, the first year of judging, I didn't even realize different flowers and things produce different flavors of honey. I mean, I was so used to it on a, a commercialized mass scale that it didn't ever dawn on me that different flowers or different produce or whatever were produced different kinds of honey. So again, anyone in the audience, I think it's important that you go try different types of honey, not just this raw honey that's in a grocery store, but go out to the artisans that are doing it like Classic City Bee and try the honeys because the flavor profile, in my opinion, is so much bigger when you go to companies like yours and try these honeys that are actually being you know, focused on the flavor, focused on what the honey is, not just mass producing honey. And I think there's a big difference there. So um, just as a side note, I think that's important. So, yes, I'm happy to be educated. And I learned a lot from this episode. I had no idea the whole functionality of the bees and all that. And I actually like it more because the angle of – I'm going on a tangent. and But the angle of learning bees through an entrepreneur's eyes who see it, one, from a business standpoint, but also see it as – you know, wanting to produce the best product that's out there, not just explain what the bees are in nature, but sort of explain how helping the bees and doing what's right from the bees can be a profitable venture for someone. So while helping the bees is good for humans, it's also can be profitable and be the right thing to do. So I really enjoyed this episode for sure. Um, and thank you again. I, I'm always very thankful. I'm a very, uh, I'm full of gratitude always, so try to be. And um, so again, this is Justin, the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. If you want to reach me, it's justin.bizarro at gmail.com, or you can reach us on Facebook or Instagram at Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs. Thank you, everyone, for listening in, and have a great day.